0: Find out more by going to wwwintelligencequaredcom forward slash partnerships.
1: Have you ever wanted to take a load of psychedelic drugs, magic mushrooms, LSD? go on a trip and then write a book about it.
2: This is the Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Daniel Ben-Corin.
1: And me, Faraj And don't worry, this week it's still the normal Intelligence Squared podcast where we explore a really interesting issue. This week we look at the science of psychedelic drugs. Daniel, what was the conversation about?
2: So actually we had Michael Pollan, who's a very famous food writer, but he's written about something slightly different this time. His book is called How to Change Your Mind. What the New Science of Psychedelics teaches us about consciousness, dying, addiction, depression, and transcendence. So he was interviewed by Zand van Tulliken. He is a doctor and a TV presenter who you recognize from science programs on the BBC. And they look into psychedelic drugs and how they impact our consciousness. We hope you enjoy listening.
1: And if you're interested in coming to any events that Intelligence Squared hosts in London, just go on our website at intelligencesquared.com. We can offer you, our listeners, a special 20% discount. Just type in the promo code PODCAST at the checkout. We have some really interesting events lined up, including at the end of August, an event with the novelist Salman Rushdie. So check it out on our website. Hope to see you there.
2: Hello, I'm Zahn van Tullican. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I am here with Michael Pollan. I've read many of your books, Michael, and I found this one to be one of the most interesting and formative. But I have a huge number of questions. So, Excellent. Wel- welcome to London, first thank of you. All. Very good. I know to be you've here. just come in from the states. So can we kick off with the project of the book? It's called How to Change Your Mind. It's not called Looking for God or anything no. like this. What was your idea when you set out to investigate psychedelics?
3: Well, my, there are many doors into the subject of psychedelics and spirituality is certainly one of them. I kind of went out that door, but I came in through the door of therapy and the the, the revival of research into the therapeutic potential of psychedelics. I had heard about a trial, a drug trial going on, at both at NYU and Johns Hopkins, two very prestigious medical institutions in the United States, where they were administering psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, to patient cancer patients, many of them terminal, to see if it would help relieve their what the doctors call their existential distress, their, their fear, depression, anxiety around their diagnosis, the fear of recurrence, and, and their approaching death in many cases. And this struck me as such a peculiar idea that a, a trip would help someone deal with death, that I immediately thought I had to look into this. So I did an article on these trials. It's called The Trip Treatment. It's And you can find it online very easily uh, for The New Yorker. And I had conversations with these volunteers that were so astonishing to me. People who had had a single guided psychedelic trip. In other words, they're, the way these drugs are used in this context is not recre the way we do recreationally. They're not taking a pill and going off. There's a lot of uh, psychological support. So you're prepared very carefully at the beginning. There are two guides or therapists who tell you kind of what to expect, what to do if you get into trouble, if you see something horrible, if you feel like you're dying or going crazy. And the the basic advice is surrender to what's happening. Uh, Mm. Because if you fight it, that's when you get into the territory of the bad trip. Uh, And then during the experience, you are wearing eye shades, which struck me as interesting and odd, and listening to music on headphones, a very carefully curated playlist, and the therapists are with you, but they don't see anything. They're just available to help you if you get anxious or anything. They'll give you a, a comforting hand. And then after the experience, which lasts about four to six hours, you come back and they debrief you, and, and you have an integration session trying to make sense of what can be a very confusing experience. So that that was the therapy they were getting, one session, and it was changing their outlook in profound ways. Many of them had encounters with their cancer Many of them had a had some sort of acquired some sort of preview of what was to come. Some had a pretty clear sense of a of an afterlife. Others a more naturalistic sense that their self might dissolve, but they would be taken up by the plants and become part of the universe and stardust. And and that their redefinition, I think, of the boundaries of the self made it a lot easier for them to contemplate death. So you start with a population
2: that we feel comfortable with in in several ways. There are a population for whom the medical options have I'm been exhausted. Yeah. And I think the idea that you might wait until you are terminally ill to experiment with, with drugs is not an uncommon one. The, the fact that the drugs, though, might alter their experience of how they confront death and their illness seems to be pretty extraordinary is that that's the thing that you were interested
3: yeah in. that was i mean there was a couple things one was the people having these you know essentially spiritual experiences i'd never had a spiritual experience but it was also just the ability of people late in life and most of them were in their 50s and 60s that i interviewed changing their perspective in profound ways you know we're we we do not change very much as we get older we get kind of locked in to various habits of thought we have these algorithms we use to get through the day and We have these beliefs that organize our experience, our biases, priors, as the neuroscientists say. And, the, and, and by, by
2: that you, you're talking about I mean the set of assumptions we have to make in everyday life that the floor will stay when we stand on it that gravity will continue to function the sun will rise in the morning but even more foods are going to taste the
3: way you expect them to taste those sorts of things or you know I can't get through the day without a cigarette or okay. I am you know my work is crap or I'm unworthy of love I mean there are okay. a lot of dis- it's the stories we tell ourselves these, these in, ingrained beliefs we have about the nature of ourselves and the world my boss is you know a prick and he's going to give me a hard time as he always does we just walk into every situation with it scripted in many ways and, and death
2: is maybe the, one of the most scripted things that we one of the hardest things to prepare for and one of the things that we we are aware of
3: from and also age. we age and also we confront a, a, a silence in the culture about it and there's no one to talk to us about it especially when we're facing it the doctors don't talk about it they keep talking about fighting in fact many doctors were very reluctant to have their patients participate because they saw it as a concession uh, oncologists you know it was a defeat as far as they were concerned they had trouble recruiting it was the nurses who would send people over to uh, to these trials and what was striking is that you could actually have a, a profound shift in perspective when you were in your 50s and 60s whether you were confronting death or not and many i'll give you an example there was a woman i interviewed who was 60 she was a um, figure skating instructor in New York. She was a small, somewhat timid woman, I thought. And she had had ovarian cancer and had been successfully treated. And she was in remission. And she, but she was so terrified of the recurrence that the other shoe would fall any day that she was paralyzed. And so she entered this trial. And as, as do many of the uh, volunteers who have cancer, they imaginatively tour their body. They go into their body and their minds. And uh, in her case, she saw this black mass under her rib cage. It wasn't her cancer. Her because that was it was in the wrong place mm. but she immediately recognized it and she says that's my fear it was this black mass and and she screamed at it and imagine the guides who don't know what's going on in her head and suddenly this little woman says get the fuck out of my body <laughs> and she said at that moment it disappeared in a puff of smoke and um and she said it didn't come back And I asked her, uh, so in the article, I said, and you know, Dina's fear was substantially diminished. And when the fact checkers from The New Yorker called her to confirm this, she said, no, he got it wrong. My fear was eliminated. And the way she explained it to me, she said, I understood then, I had this epiphany that although I couldn't control my cancer, it was either going to come back or not, I could control my fear. This was the part of the story I could control. And that changed everything for her. She went on to say that she'd had this um, profound experience and had kissed the face of God. And she had told me before that she was an atheist. And I said, so you're no longer an atheist? And she says, no, I'm still an atheist. I said, well, you just said you kissed the face of God. And she said, well, we don't have anything big enough to describe what I felt. So I have to use the biggest word we have. But I'm still an atheist.
2: <laughs> I'm very interested in the way you, you've structured the book because that, that story to me is so such a beautiful way of beginning the argument where you start with a group of people where we have no tools to deal with
3: this. And a great you start deal of sympathy. A, and,
2: and a huge amount of sympathy and also a sense not of kind of, well, anything goes and we can experiment on people who are dying, but they should be free to explore different yeah. things and what's the, what's the worst that could happen. What's the harm, yeah. The, the place that you get to in the book, you get to several very interesting places. One is about the questions about where consciousness resides, mm-hmm. uh, then about the tension between... Medical use of these drugs and uses for possibly the, everyone, the betterment um, of well people. That is kind one of, my and, and you you it. have a nice thing about recreation, Or you're you're corrected at one point about yeah. your the, the phrase Word recreation. recreation. Why, why should we? Why should we like the experience? Is that trivial? That no, it's not. W- was it hard to, to kind of thread the needle where you're, you're trying to assemble an argument that says we we've, we've got a core here of obvious places where we should be investing money in medical research, but broadening that to going, yeah. we should be asking questions about reintroducing these drugs into our culture. And well, I
3: think, be, I think it's controversial. I mean, I think we're, we're comfortable. We have a medical model where we control these substances very carefully and only doctors can prescribe them. But, you know, we're all on a continuum with the people that these drugs can help. I mean, we're, we're using them now in, uh, in experimental therapy. I mean, we're still going through. These haven't been approved yet by the government I think they will in the next five or seven years or something, so we 're using it for depression, addiction, anxiety, obsession, possibly eating disorders, but we all are addicted to something we all have periods of depression, we all have periods of anxiety this is and we 're all mortal, and we 're all dealing with our mortality so so to draw a line and say these people are sick and we 'll give it to them, but there're all these people who are on, on a spectrum with those people that can 't have it, and even though it might help them. And keeping in mind, too, the drugs are virtually non-toxic. I'm speaking of psilocybin and Mm -hmm. LSD in particular. There's no lethal dose for these drugs. They're non-addictive. Yes, there are risks, serious psychological risks. So people need to be screened carefully and ideally guided. and behavior risks that you can, if, yeah, if because you're, you're disabled. You're, you're. Uh, I mean, you don't have. You could walk out into traffic. You could fall off a building or jump yeah. off a building. I mean, so, so there is a good argument for having someone with you that, that the experience be supervised. And there's a very good argument for having a medical screening to check out whether you're at risk for, say, schizophrenia or other um, personality, you know, or, uh, psych- psychotic illnesses those people should not take the drug. They can trip off a psychotic break in people who are liable to that. So... It's not like cannabis, you know. I, I don't support legalization along the lines in the States we're now legalizing cannabis. I don't want to see large corporations pushing this on consumers. I think that would be a huge mistake. They're, they're, it's very consequential to take a psychedelic trip, and it should not be approached casually uh, or recklessly. So, I, so I, I'd, love to, I'd, I'd love to come back
2: to the corporations and the profit motive because you, yeah. you're, you're dealing – so, so if we can, we put a pin in that. But that, that to me is one of the most interesting things that you allude to in the book is is where these drugs have ended up and the role of role of corporations and the role of this sort of psychiatric industrial complex yeah. and, in sidelining them or, or variously promoting them. But can we go back to your trips because yeah. I think one of the most compelling bits of the book Uh, it's beautifully researched but also it's immersive and that you you describe am I right you describe four trips with DMT LSD psilocybin and ayahuasca ayahuasca. talk about what your I don't mean describe the trips you do that very well in the book but I was expecting maybe a more dramatic conclusion that you got to. What's your kind of – because you are – you are. can I sum you up this way? You are a, a successful guy with a family who has, I would say, one of the more meaningful jobs I can think of, that you're a journalist who's influential. You've written books that have changed people's lives. That you And you've also spent time in nature. You've kind of been able to satisfy yourself in lots of different ways. And, and the sense I get from this book and others is that you have meaningful relationships in your life. So, taking these drugs for you, looking for a spiritual experience is maybe a strange quest so what did you
3: what did you get from it? Well, I had reached a point in life where the the kinds of changes I was observing and the people I was interviewing became more appealing i mean I was a creature of habit. I had these very deep grooves of how I dealt with things. I had my algorithms that got me through the day, that navigated my relationships with people. I knew what to say in any given situation. I knew how to sue the child. I knew how to manage a fight with a spouse. You know, all those kind of things were like, they were working fine. But on the other hand, when we have those patterns of behavior and thought, they, they kind of blind us to experience. We're not Is- as present. Um and, and so that the idea that you could actually have a shift of some kind in personality or perspective at this point in life was actually quite appealing to me. And the questions of mortality that were coming up, talking to I mean, these were the most candid conversations about death I'd ever had with anyone, and these people were facing it. And as it happened at the same time, my dad, who'd had a terminal cancer diagnosis, um, was going through his this process mm. And he was uh, – he could not talk about it. I, I never learned how he processed it. And I broached the subject at various times to find out how he was feeling. And and I, to this day, I don't know how he processed it. So to think about that, too, was, was you know, very compelling to me. And then there was good old journalistic curiosity and, and, and also – this is what I do as a writer. I put myself I find a way to put myself in a mm. situation that illuminates the story. When I wrote about the cattle industry, I bought a cow. You know, this is kind of my mode and I like to put myself in the story for all sorts of reasons, but it finally it's the only way to really know what an experience is like. You can interview people endlessly and until you've been in their shoes, you really don't know. And Was there a particular of those kind of Routine modes of thought.
2: Was there a particular one that you were trying to escape? Like for me, for me, it would be my relentless desire to please people. When I'm yeah. chatting to them, yeah. I just want it all to go smoothly. I want to yeah. avoid confrontation. I want them to have a nice experience of talking to me. Yeah. And I feel like that would be something that I would love to chase down yeah. and eliminate at least in the moments where I wanted to. I, Is there I a particular thing that. for, for um, you?
3: For me, I think it was. I, I was someone who always lived in the future. I was always thinking about the next step, the next thing I had to do. It was only in nature, only in the garden, really, would I just kind of be present and not be, you know, mental time travel was a big part of my life. I didn't think back that much, but Mm -hmm. I always thought I had a couple steps. And that gets in the way of perception. It gets in the way of all sorts of taking in information from where you are right now. Because I'm, I'm like, all right, what am I doing after this? I've got a lunch scheduled and this and this. You know, I see my whole day. And so that's a habit. That's a mental habit I'd like to break. It's, it's about worrying to some extent, but it's also about anticipating things so I'm not surprised. Okay. Which and means? And better to be surprised.
2: You then, you then are more open to changes in plans or different... Uh, yeah,
3: and just more present to life and what's happening in the present and taking it all in rather than making these little shortcut moves to like, okay, I'll get through this and then I can do that.
2: So I think you've had as good a set of psychedelic experiences as anyone could could reasonably have, I think, in terms of the expertise brought to it, the doses, the quality of the chemicals. And yet to me, the book still feels like a Michael Pollan book. It's still, Mm -hmm. and although I haven't met you before, I've seen you on the television, I've Mm -hmm. listened to listen you read the book that you don't seem to have wildly altered your personality. Am I wrong or
3: are the yeah, tweaks I, more subtle or I is think it it's temporary? pretty subtle. I, I mean I think that my personality has shifted to some extent from this experience. I think and on this I'm relying somewhat on my wife and her testimony, because so many journalists have asked me this question. And of course you ask your spouse as you know, who else knows better whether you've changed? And her take is she feels that I'm I'm more open Uh, And indeed, there's scientific research that psychedelic experience changes the openness as a domain of personality and that that is the one that seems to change. That could be tolerance for other points of view. It's tied to creativity, all that kind of stuff. And more patient, less defensive. I think she would say all those things. So this sounds like an improved version of the original yeah, like I would Paulin say. 2.0. Oh yeah, I don't think I, I don't think I lost anything. I think I gained <laughs> a few things. Yeah, no, I, and and the big thing she said though, which really stuck with me and sounds right, is that when I asked her this question, so how do you think I'm different? She said, well, I think you would have handled your father's death differently than you did. He died a year ago, January, and I was very present for it. I I moved into the apartment for the last 10 days. I, you know, lied in bed with him, said everything that needed to be said. It was an incredibly intense experience that I wanted to be present for. And I could easily imagine at another time in my life, you know, death is one of the things our egos defend us against, and that I would have found ways not to be quite so present, because um, it was not easy. And um, but it's where I wanted to be. And she felt that that was that reflected a, a shift um, that I could handle. That that I that I that I sought that contact rather than defended myself against it. And you didn't? Did you try and
2: encourage your dad to take? No, uh, that wasn't.
3: You know, it went through my head. By the time he was dying, he had some dementia, and I just didn't know how he would process that either. I just didn't seem like he had expressed no curiosity in it. He and he knew what you he knew he had what I some was idea up to. What yeah, he you didn't usually read my my stuff. I don't think he read the article, but it's not like my mother brought it up either. And you know, it's funny. It's my my mother in law has you know, who's ninety three, has asked me. She's very interested in it but I it's a huge responsibility. <laughs> yes. And but she can read the work and make up her own she, life, did, she did. She okay. did, but I would have to be the facilitator and uh, like I don't think I want to do that uh,
2: yeah so, okay I can
3: see that it's, complicated. Yeah, it's very complicated with your mother-in-law
2: what uh, about going in in the other direction down through the generations you've got a you have a son is that right I have a son yeah who's 26 and so he must he must be aware of this oh be interested absolutely in this. he and was intense what are
3: your views on him doing it and his views on what you've done well I mean, I'm really glad he's not 15 and dad's doing psychedelics and you know writing approvingly about because there's nothing um, less cool than that that would really <laughs> that would really ruin it for him <laughs> But he's had some experiences. He shared those with me. Um, he's had some really good experiences and one really bad experience. And um, not for himself, but he was with a friend. They were hiking, doing mushrooms in high school. And the friend decided that his arm was falling off, which it was not, and just absolutely was freaking out about that. And Isaac could not reassure him that his arm was well attached. And finally they had to get they got to a parking lot and Isaac had to persuade a woman there to take the two boys to their pediatrician <laughs> to make sure his arm was okay to show them okay Yeah and the pediatrician knew exactly what was happening just said sit in the waiting room you're you're going to be fine and it passed and everything, but it was a lot of a lot on Isaac's shoulders. That's a nice bit of
2: intuitive medicine from that pediatrician. That's yeah, not, they could have escalated that in a very bad have. way. They could have,
3: they could have, and um, I think she recognized a panic attack, and maybe she examined the arm. and <laughs> She saw yeah, all he of, attached to us. Was checking, well, once the arms attached, it's a lot easier. <laughs> the rest of the consultation's much more straightforward. Yeah. So my son was keenly interested in my experiences. He would want me to debrief him after each one, and you know, I, I think your dad's trips are kind of intrinsically interesting at a certain age because you're learning something about him. Well, I phoned my
2: dad this morning who was at art college in the 60s and he'd taken LSD and DMT in large doses as part of, as part of these research projects that were going on. And uh, it was very uh, kind of unilluminated. I, I thought... Uh, having read the book, I'd asked him about it before, but I thought oh, I really want to know about the the kind of spiritual side of it. Had he had a mystical experience? And he said, "No, it was just very annoying, and it kind of went it on. Was too annoying, long, and it was annoying. when I yeah. kept him awake. And I, I I think he'd he'd had no nothing other than the hallucinations and the visions, but yeah. nothing had
3: been revealed. Well, you to know, him. I I think there are many people in the sixties who had some great experiences, and then would have one terrible experience, and then they would never go near it again. And I think that we approach these this Differently, we have an assumption now that what happens has meaning, that this isn't just the drug talking. This is not just a drug experience. The drug, none of these images, hallucinations, insights are in the molecule. They're in your head. And the drug is an unspecific mental amplifier of various mental processes, whether it's synesthesia, and one sense is getting crosswired with another, or bringing unconscious material into an observable space. Whatever it is, it's you, and so bears some thought. And, and I don't know that that was common in the 60s to think about it that way, that that that, that these drugs are producing meaning. Is um, that different to other drugs, though? So you could say the same – we have the expression in Vino
2: Veritas that we think the same is true of alcohol to some extent, that it will amplify your mood. Well, alcohol it disinhibits seems to have certain, you. And, and alcohol seems to have certain stages of drunkenness through to sort yeah. of ha- having fun through to being tearful and eventually kind yeah. of angry and Dark. then comatose, yeah. you know. And, and, and that seems to be quite reproducible. But – are these, the, the hallucinogens as a group, or the, 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 the psychedelics as a group of molecules, do you feel like they're doing something different to, to yeah, other I drugs? Yeah, I do. And,
3: and why is that? Well, I think that the kind of the phenomenology or the lived experience of, of, of alcohol, of cocaine, of opiates, is, is pretty consistent across people. I mean, alcohol is a little different because people can react in different ways. Some people get more eloquent and exuberant, and other people get very dark and brooding. Uh, And some people get very aggressive. And that's somewhat socially constructed. You know, I think different cultures, people react differently to, to alcohol. But most drugs are pretty predictable that, you know, we recognize the feeling you have on cocaine or an opiate. And there's something incredibly variable about the psychedelics that if you and I both took a psychedelic right now in the same room, same time of day, same material, same dose, we would have substantially different experiences. So it's very much a product of our minds. And in that, you're taking a very small number of molecules. It's really influencing only one receptor network and having very specific effects in the brain. Alcohol is a very general toxin, basically. It's affecting you in, in, in lots of ways. So they're, they're cleaner drugs in that sense. So I think there is something special about them, and I think what that is is that they are laying bare things about yourself and how you process your environment and and your history. I mean, I I spent a lot of time thinking about the past in, mm-hmm. during one of my trips, and and the people in my life they were very present to me, and I was just kind of thinking in a way you you might do in a in a in a session with a a psychotherapist about my son and my relationship and things I needed to say to him. Same with my wife and my parents. And there was nothing psychedelic about it, but there was an opening. There was a relaxation. There was a, a, a window. And did those things then play out
2: into your into the future into your relationship with them and, and things that you did say? Because you, you know I've seen people when they're drunk say yeah. and then say as if I've never been drunk. You know, right. you sit, you're drunk, and you think, oh, I must phone, my son, tell them I love them, and all these. You know, these and are the, the common next morning. Things. It's like eh. you're like, oh, what was I thinking? You're yeah. looking at the dialed numbers and wondering what you did, but. Yeah. This is different,
3: that this did alter your
2: relationships.
3: It did. I mean, not in profound ways, but in subtle ways. I mean, I think I'm definitely more uh, expressive. I mean, that was something I brought out of it. One of the really peculiar things about psychedelics is that the insights you have don't appear as mere opinions, subjective takes on things. They, They have an authority. And this is a very weird thing about them. Uh, William James, when he was writing about the mystical experience, which is very similar to the psychedelic experience at at high doses, said that in addition to, I mean, he defined the mystical experience as having this sense of self-dissolving and this merging with something larger, this what he called unitive consciousness and transcendence of space and time. And, and, And one of the qualities was what he called the noetic quality. And this was this idea that, what you learn during this experience is a revealed truth. It's not just your opinion. And, um, and I saw this over and over again with the people I interviewed, smokers who would uh, were in a smoking cessation study at, at uh, Johns Hopkins that, uh, who would – I would say, how, so how after one psychedelic trip were you able to stop a habit that you'd had for 30 years? And they would say something like, well, you know, I I felt like I had a new perspective on my life. The camera was pulled further back than it ever had. And I looked at my life and I said, there's so many wonderful things to do and see in the world. And killing yourself with cigarettes is really stupid. Now, and that's you, you not address a that in the,
2: in the book where it's like, well, that's just that. But if you're yeah. a public health doctor like me, you're going, what? But I've been telling you this for a I mean, yeah. what, how can you possibly not have listened? It's
3: written on every pack. And yet somehow... We, we defend against it. it. We don't let the information in. And we tell ourselves a story that there's no way we could live without this thing. And what the drugs seem to do is um, shake loose a lot of beliefs and give those kind of resolutions and authority and that's why i think they may be very powerful for behavior change and you know as a doctor how hard that is in adults Mm. getting them to change their um you know their the way they eat or or any number of things smoking drinking whatever it is it's very hard to change as adults and this these drugs seem to um create a uh uh, a kind of uh, conviction uh, that you can change and that they also make the brain temporarily much more plastic so that it may be that that new connecting of the dots about smoking or drinking, or whatever it is, can be reinforced. And that's why the therapeutic support is so important that you underline that in, with, with, with the patient afterwards. Um, and I, I talked to, you know, a dozen or so people who'd been cured of their addictions from this single experience. And it's the most remarkable thing.
2: And now it's time for a quick break. You allude in the book to the fact this may spill over into politics as well. That it seems to me... You talk about the kind of psychedelics influence on the 60s, not just in terms of the imagery and the music and, and the kinds of conversations, but things like possibly civil rights, things like feminism... Anti-war movement. Anti-war, exactly. Environmental movement. Are, are these drugs that make you more left-wing? That being, being left-wing, <laughs> your, 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 ego, yeah. your ego has to be smaller. If, if you think of the, the ultimate extension of sort of extreme communism, where you are, are a tiny part of the whole, you exist for the serving of society... But even even being moderately left-wing involves being part of a a broader culture. You have less individualism, less
3: individual responsibility. These drugs that that do shift the politics in some way? I think they have the potential to shift political values, but I don't know that it's so clear on a left-right spectrum. So, for example, caring for nature and the land and the environment, you know, you can call that a conservative uh, position too, although in recent years conservative parties have not been as as, uh, uh, eager to defend the environment. So... The values that we do know shift is, uh, at least according to the psychologists who've looked at this, is uh, something called nature connectedness. Um, That's a scale that psychologists have that measure how much do you feel part of nature or outside of nature. And people's nature connectedness scores go up after a single psychedelic trip. Their tolerance for authoritarianism goes down. So you could infer a kind of politics from that. But I think that there's some confounding factors here. Uh, the kinds of people willing to take psychedelics and participating in these trials may may skew left. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not absolutely sure about that.
2: Although um, we've had revolutions without psychedelics. I don't. Know, I mean, I feel like psychedelics are probably involved in more elements of history than we might imagine but i don't think the french oh, revolution that, was
3: was there a lot no, of psychedelics i think coffee probably had a bigger influence on the french revolution <laughs> get out of bed it, in the it, morning well, you it came have a out of the it came out of these coffee houses that's where these you know incendiary speeches were made people were high on caffeine so no i don't think psychedelics were involved in that i think they did play a role in the 60s i think that role though can be culturally constructed in different ways in the 60s they were embraced by young people and we had this very unusual moment in the 60s where you had this giant generation of baby boomers coming of age. They were being asked to go off and fight a war in America um, that you know had very dubious um, chances of success. Uh, many of them were dying in that war. And they did something unprecedented in history, which is young boys who normally march off to war when you tell them to and get themselves killed, said no. A great number of them. They refused to go. And certainly President Nixon believed that psychedelics were part of the reason, that it was fueling the counterculture. And I think he may well be right. I mean, there are other factors at, 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 uh, at play, obviously. It's hard to tease out a single factor. But how I see the 60s influence of psychedelics playing out is that here we had this rare moment where the young people had designed their own rite of passage, the acid trip. Mm. And, you know, are you experienced or not? Do you have the knowledge or not? This became a real dividing line. Normally in a culture, rites of passage knit the whole culture together. You have the the, the elders organizing a series of obstacles that the young have to get over the adolescent. Uh, You know, so whether it's a vision quest in Native Americans or a bar mitzvah in uh, Judaism, uh, it's designed by the elders and the young cross over the river Go through the obstacles, and then they join adult community. Here you had this passage write uh, a passage, and where you ended up, it was organized by the kids, sloppily, but it was organized by the kids and they ended up in this place that adults didn 't understand, and one of the places they ended up is not accepting whatever adult frameworks there were for you know how to behave and so you had young people trying to design their own language, their own dress, their own music, their own codes of conduct. And their own politics. And this was very destabilizing. And I think that's one of the reasons that government cracked down on and media, too, cracked down on psychedelics in the late 60s.
2: And there's very little reason to think that might not happen again. So you... Yes, the, there the is. Book, well, so that's... The, the book, I would say, is an argument... It feels like you make the case for the potential benefits of these drugs and, and at least the value of doing research and, and of being open-minded yeah, about and them. Used, and used properly. And, and yet there seemed to me to be structures that would severely resist them, not least the psychiatric
3: yeah. community. So why, why, why but you, you seem to be more optimistic. So why, why are you optimistic? Yeah, and I'm more optimistic since the book came out last year, having witnessed the response of the psychiatric community, which has been much more encouraging than I ever expected. I learned a couple things. Well, here, here's the main reason I think it's going to be different. That was a once in a lifetime situation where you had a, a drug very popular among the youth that Older people didn't understand and felt threatened by. Now the, the, those baby boomers are in charge of our institutions. There are psychonauts who work at the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. There are psychonauts in, you know, heading the American Psychiatric Association. I mean, some of them have come. You know, been public about so, so. they're not as, people who people have, who have, have taken experienced. Yeah. yeah, Psychonaut is too strong, I guess, for those people. But, <laughs> um, but people who are. But, but experienced. a lot of them have. and You describe in the book that they
2: attribute some of their early, yeah, um, interest in the mind to, the, to their interest in the mind to, to, yeah. to subsequent careers, and that's that's been true of lots of prominent psychologists and psychiatrists. Yes. So.
3: so I think that when this comes along as a therapy, they feel a little less threatened. It's a little less foreign. They are not as terrified of it, basically. So I think we're seeing the fruits of that large-scale dosing that happened in the 60s now as we as these drugs get ushered through the approval process and, and don't incur and have not encountered a lot of resistance. And yet you are
2: presenting to the most lucrative drug marketplace in the world, a set of drugs that are off-patent. Yeah.
3: Um, you only so take, once that, you take
2: once or twice, almost side-effect-free, um, in, in, in some ways they're safe compared to a lifetime of, say, SSRIs yeah. or um, many other psychiatric drugs. So you're, you're, if they do even a fraction of what the trials suggest is possible, they present a significant threat to big pharma. So what, th- there is always resistance to a yeah. change in the status quo. So where... So, Where do you see that coming from? What's going to be the counter-movement? Yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll make um, proprietary me MeToo molecules that are better.
3: That, that That's what they'll try to the, do is they're done with
2: ketamine. Okay.
3: And I think that, I mean, so far, as far as I can tell, and I've sniffed around journalistically a little, the pharmaceutical industry is just kind of watching this. I talked to someone who was had been head of research at one of the big pharmas, and, and she said, oh, we're definitely looking at this. And when some little company figures out how to make money on it, we'll buy them. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's what passes for innovation now in the pharmaceutical industry. They don't, they don't research psychiatric drugs. They're, they've disinvested in CNS drugs. They, I don't know why because it's a huge market and it's a huge problem.
2: What about funding think tanks that are gently putting out anti-psychedelic propaganda, sponsoring research that says they're bad, emphasizing news – you know, funding uh, newspaper could, stories where their side effects are emphasized, etc. Yeah, all that kind I, of
3: thing? I think that's a risk. I mean, I think there are a couple of risks. I mean, one is that, that, that uh, powers that be who are threatened by this somehow get in the way. The other is, a, is another backlash, political backlash. And that could happen too. I mean, look, we're trialing a depression drug here. Three or 600 people are going to use it in the next couple of years who are seriously depressed. One of them is going to commit suicide or two. You know, they have to taper people off their SSRIs to do it. And that's a risk for suicide. And that suicide will get a lot of attention because it'll be tied to a psychedelic drug. And there's that meme in the culture that people on psychedelics jump off of buildings. Whereas, as you know perfectly well, people commit suicide on SSRIs or getting off SSRIs in some cases
2: at a higher rate.
3: Yeah. It's yeah, and it's you know it's it's a risk that's listed on the box. I mean on the on the packaging, it's suicide. So it's not a story when someone commits suicide on an SSRI. But it, so that could be that's one thing. I, I worry too that there could be a case of sexual abuse. Here you have a therapist working with a patient who's whose judgment is really disabled. And in the case of the work with MDMA that's going on, which is not exactly a psychedelic, but it's another Schedule I drug, ecstasy, mm. that's being used to treat trauma with with a great deal of success. That drug creates such a powerful bond of trust. And an intense desire for physical contact, physical affection. That's right. And that an unscrupulous therapist could take advantage of someone under those circumstances. So I think the threats are that, uh, you know, we could have negative stories in the media, such as a case of sexual abuse or an instance of a suicide. I mean, bad things might happen because now a lot of people are in these trials and lots more people are using the drugs underground. So... So that could lead to a backlash, too. But so far, and the other thing that I would be concerned about and I've written about recently is if we politicize these drugs now, say, with ballot initiatives to legalize Mm -hmm. psilocybin, which are getting underway in America and in several states, I worry that could politicize a process that so far has not been, that the FDA has looked at these as drugs. They've said Look, the fact that it's Schedule 1, the fact that it's psychedelic is not going to affect our judgment. This is going to go through the same process any other drug would. Uh, and there has been no effort as, that I've been able to determine to to lobby the FDA one way or the other. And so it's the process is working the way it should. If we suddenly have a big public debate about psychedelics, that could force politicians prematurely to take positions. And we have a – particularly in this country, we have
2: a terrible history of – not being willing to look at the objective drug research and to simply use yes, our right. pre preconceptions about the Yeah, problems.
3: and ideology. And so, so I'm hoping that the, the medical work, I mean, if I'm advocating for anything in this book, it's not for widespread use of psychedelics. It's really for doing this research, finding out what we have to learn about the mind from this and... Seeing if this promise as a therapy can be realized because it hasn't yet been realized. I mean, we have good signals in these early studies, but we need to do much bigger studies, and they're going to happen. So,
2: tell me, we've we've got a few minutes left. Just there are a couple of things I want to touch on. One is about music, and you talk about listening to Yo-Yo Ma playing "Bark" on the cello, and that your experience of that music was completely different. Did you think that that was a
3: more authentic or even an authentic experience of that music? Without doubt. It was more authentic. I mean, the barriers that stand between us, uh, the subject-object distinction that I am listening to a piece of music to it, came down. This was after I'd had my ego completely dissolve on this high-dose psilocybin trip. At some point I looked out and I saw myself burst into a little cloud of post-it notes, and then I I looked out again and I was a a coat of pain on on the ground. Now, I say I looked out, so who was that? And I still don't know, this new perspective that I somehow was able to see my own dissolution from. Mm. But after you don't have an ego, there are there are no walls between you and anything else. And for me, this piece of music was where the walls came down. And I, 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 I didn't just hear it. I became it. I felt identical with this piece of music. I, I felt I could feel Yo-Yo Ma's Bow, the horsehair of his bow passing over my skin, and and could see the world from out you know the little. And can you when you listen to, to it shallow, again now?
2: Is it is it the same or is it?
3: It's not as powerful, but it's still a it's a strong piece of music for me. I listen to it a lot, and um, uh, it means something different than it did. But no, I, I can't recapture quite that that way of hearing um, that music. I mean, one of the most astonishing things about psychedelics is that the senses don't operate discreetly. Like over here is sound and over here is seeing. They they move together and, and you can see music. Um, I was just talking to someone who knew... Owsley Stanley was the legendary uh, LSD chemist and Grateful Dead uh, music engineer. And I asked someone who knew him well, I said, how did those two expertise... And he was brilliant at both, which is rare. Two people get so good at two different things. Did one have anything to do with the other? And this person said, oh, yeah, he saw the music coming out of the speakers and he realized mm. it was all wrong. <laughs> and the waves were just not right. And that gave him uh, an insight on how he should organize the speakers to um, to make the music look right. It struck
2: me taking ayahuasca, that the, the plants. You talk about the plant having something to teach you and you, you really work on that. But looking at ayahuasca as an argument for biodiversity and for the value of indigenous knowledge that I mean, those things, are much like much like you're saying about the qu- people quitting smoking, like, of course, biodiversity is good. And of course, we should listen to indigenous knowledge. But that felt profoundly more true after taking the Iowa.
3: Yeah, smoke. I mean, a lot of people come out of that experience that, you know, that the plants have sent a message from nature, and the nature has stopped fucking things up so much. And, you know, I don't think that's literally true. But I think it gives you here is a plant that comes from the Amazon that's giving you a very profound sense of, oh, my God, we have to, we have to take care of this world. So and maybe just, it's come along at just the right time.
2: Can we finish on consciousness? You raise the question in the book about consciousness, that consciousness may reside outside the mind. And you land in this rather nice place with quantum physics, and you say that a mind will change the quality of a, of a particle, of a subatomic particle. Which certainly fits with what I know about quantum physics, mm-hmm. and that you are open to the possibility that consciousness may exist outside of the mind. Can you talk a yeah, bit more about I that? Think... Because that's the, the book feels the book is so rational. It's so, it's such a good bit of journalism. It feels so clear, and obviously you you present yourself as a as a, a very credible. In a way, you're one of the few people who could make that argument. That to land it there. The, se- the penultimate sentence is mystery abides. Yeah. Can you just talk about that idea?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a very common uh, conclusion people reach after their psychedelic experience that perhaps consciousness is not a product of the brain, that, that that they're experiencing something that feels a lot like consciousness that's outside. And I did have, I described that perspective that I had, which was not me exactly, that I had borrowed this perspective that had perfect equanimity about the dissolution of who I was. And I wasn't ready to go there. I didn't, you know, there are people who take DMT and they see entities, you know, um, there's a, it's a very common trope that people see um, machine elves, mm. these kind of robotic elves. It's remarkable how many people see, have the same thing. And there are people who think they're visiting another dimension or some kind of collective consciousness is manifesting itself. And I didn't know whether to credit these experiences or just say this was another product of my mind from another place that wasn't my ego, but it was some other voice that had been quieted before then. But I, the more I looked into this consciousness question, the more I realized that we don't have a clue where consciousness comes from. We, the, the idea that brains produce consciousness, that meat produces mind, is an assumption. Or as the Dalai Lama said, it's an interesting hypothesis. But it's only a <laughs> hypothesis. And so that made me a little more cautious about my, my – because I, I generally have materialist assumptions – that there are things that can't be explained that way. And science is very reluctant to go there. But I think we have to keep an open mind. I mean, it's possible that consciousness or something like it, perhaps information, is a property of the world in the same way gravity and electromagnetism are, that they exist outside and that um, we partake in some ways, that we tune into it or that, um, uh, you know, there may precede matter. So, I just, you know, that's a big move to get to the, to the agnostic on this question from, oh, surely brains produce consciousness. But I was amazed how little evidence there is for that proposition.
2: I really like that. So, look, if you're listening to this, uh, Michael's book will certainly change your mind in some way. Um, <laughs> I highly recommend it. Michael, thank you very, very much for, uh, uh, for my, coming my in. It was pleasure, a pleasure. Great to be here. Cheers.
0: What are you doing right now?